Hello and welcome to another episode of Is Vicious Fantasy. I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. Uh, and I'm the guy who killed one of Geordie's friends is having to do this out of eternal recompense, Duncan Nickel. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a pity. I'm, I'm glad that we're finally starting to get past that stage in our relationship. Listen, mate, you know I'm sorry, and in many respects, actually, I think we've got a better relationship going than the one you had with him. Mm, yeah, sorry, Tom. Oh, well, we'll move on. <laughs> talking yes. of getting over the deaths of her... <laughs> I don't, do you know We're talking about yeah. A Court of Thorn and Roses. We are! It we're talking is... about A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Mass. It was Georgie's pick to do for Book Club, and... Indeed. This has been the longest two weeks we've probably ever had. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, we did have a bit of a delay when Duncan got COVID and could not record, like, he could barely talk. So definitely was not up to podcasting. But I am recovered, mostly, and I'm really excited. This, when we first read this book three weeks ago, Geordie, I was full of the ideas, the concepts, everything was Mm -hmm. going on in my head. That's right. Um, Now I'm literally looking at my notes going, okay. I have a vague notion of what the plot was. Yeah, who the that's characters unfortunate. Are. It's kind of the same for me as well. Like, I have forgotten a lot of character names. Um, I remember three, but that's, that's it. That's really good. When I What um, is the bad guy's name again? Uh, um, the evil woman in this is called Amarantha? Ah, yeah, yeah. Amarantha, yeah. She's named after a plant. Phew, good one, Duncan. So, and it's not just because it's been a long time, because obviously we've been reading a lot in between. I yeah, uh, I, I certainly have, have. I had a lot of time in my sick bed to uh, crack through some books. But Geordie, you start. What have you been reading other than A Court of Fallen Roses? I've been reading a lot. Like even given the fact it's been like twice as long in between episodes, um, like a lot of stuff has gotten done. For example, I've been uh, I've really stumbled back into historical fiction. I loved Bernard Cornwall's Warlord trilogy. He's one's about King Arthur, but I'd never read any of his other stuff. And I started reading his uh, his Saxon series, starting with The Last Kingdom. And God, those are such good books. They're really good. Have you read them, Duncan? I have indeed. Not all of them. Uh, I read them when I was a kid. When I first started reading them, I think we were only up to book three. Um, mm. And I think I read it up to about book five. And then sort of in the time between releases, I sort of kind of wandered away from them. I think Burning Land, the mm-hmm. last one I read. Um, where do you, Yeah, where are you up to with them? What do you think? I've only just finished the second one and I took a little break to start my new reading project. I definitely want to keep going with a series and probably see it through to the end. Unless there's like a, I don't know, serious drop in quality. Uh, I, However, I have moved on from that to starting to read War and Peace. So that might keep me busy for a while. Oh, you only think the little things to do around this podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was definitely... I, the funny... The best thing about it is, is that, obviously, when most people are going to read Bernard Cornwall, they're going to be going, hey, this is really good. Maybe I should read his most successful and most famous series, The Sharp Books, about the Napoleonic Wars. And then I went, the Napoleonic Wars? I better read War and Peace! <laughs> okay, a few things here. Firstly, you're massively missing out by not reading Sharp. It is a wonderful series. I bet it is. I say that. It's the highlights are wonderful. Mm-hmm. There's like 22 books. There are some lowlights in there. Oh dear. And I really hope you enjoy keep reading the Saxon books. I personally found the third book in the series. Um, I think it's called Laws of the North. Yeah. Absolute to me that was when I would say it's when it peaked. Mm, but it's where that's it peaked good to know. for me. 
That's really good to know because amazing book. reading the blurb, I got a little my my excitement for it like died a little bit because it sounded a bit like, you know, it it, it felt like it was going off on a tangent where it was previous about you know Alpha the Great and the Saxons, and then it was like okay now, Uhtred's just gonna do his thing like elsewhere. Somewhat, I do think there's a element to those books, and I I don't know I've not spoken to Bernard Cornwell, but I do get the a sense sometimes where he's like okay. This has been quite successful. Um, I can't quite go at the historical pace that I've been going up to this point. So there is a lot more original stuff, a lot more kind of Uhtred and his and Bernard Cornwell's characters going off on adventures. Mm. Whereas the first two books are very much like big historical moment, big historical moment. Yeah, I mean, and I guess he's so committed to he's so committed to the actual timeline of stuff down to like people taking months long break in between campaigns that I guess he's just like nothing happened in this period. They've got to be up to something. I better fill in another novel in between the time, which now to think about it is basically what George R. R. Martin did to differing levels of success. <laughs> what have you been reading, Dunk? So in my kind of ill adult state, um, I wasn't mm-hmm. particularly up to reading any particularly long novels. You know, I couldn't quite get the focus up. So I actually fell back on comics an awful lot. Mm. And when I say an awful lot, I mean entirely. And when I say comics, mm. I mean exclusively Batman. Um, I see. I, so it's been a I Batman binged, month for you. It has. I binged a lot. So I had sitting on my Kindle the omnibuses for the entirety of the Nightfall saga. Sure, sure. A very famous a, period of the comics. Yeah, sort of a mid-90s art written by Chuck Dixon. And I just got completely absorbed into the works. Um, That's a period of time where Batman gets his spine broken by Bane and then he gets replaced by another guy called Azazel. Azazel? Azriel. Azriel, okay, excuse me. I'm thinking of a different angel. Um, I Yes, so it's very interesting. I've not really read a lot of that particular era, that sort of mid-90s era comic books. Um, it's quite interesting because over the arc, you actually kind of see the artwork begin to transition to war, sort of early noughties. Mm. It's kind of so long running. So that was really interesting to see. But boy, howdy. Um, I can't really use the phrase boy, howdy. That's not what I say. That's um, my thing. Get a fuck away from your me. phrase. Yeah. It runs long in the tooth. Like. Oh, dear. There are so much of this. Well, actually, not so much, but there's quite a like, why are we still doing this? Why are we still getting these little stories? The initial Nightfall, so Nightfall's split up into three arcs Nightfall, Night Quest, and Night's End. And mm-hmm. the middle section, Night Quest, we just follow the Batman replacement um, mm-hmm. after Bruce Wayne has his back broken. And it's sort of meant to be this story of what if Batman didn't have his strong kind of don't kill moral code? That's definitely never been examined before, you know, like that's a really unexamined aspect of Batman's character. It never really gets brought up. I don't know if you're using sarcasm at this point. I'm being extremely sarcastic. People do that all the time. True, but like mid 90s, maybe this was one of the earlier on attempts, Mm. but it really got me mad because we spend so much time with this guy and you're like, I get the point. I get what you're doing. I get what you're saying. And it is issue after issue. And what really drove me mad is that he doesn't kill a bloke. (laughs) What he does is he doesn't save a bloke. 
I see. A bloke is Batman it's begins like a, rules. Yeah, he's like uh, a chap is like hanging over like a I don't know, a van for like molten metal and he doesn't even decide not to save him. He has this like he's so like stressed out and overworked, he has this like hallucination of like an archangel speaking to him and he gets so distracted the bloke falls into a vat of metal molten metal that's weird and everyone goes mad they're like how could you you let him die and i'm like yeah yeah i'm getting to the story whatever yeah i'm following it along and then after i finished nightfall i went back and i started reading um the early tim drake robin comics Mm. and in there there are situations where our heroes basically walk away maybe with less intention and like mm-hmm. villains die. There's a bit later on in Nightfall where Bruce Wayne is sort of trying to like get his groove back mm. and he's training under um, this kind of elite assassin. And there's a point where the assassin sends him after um, a league of ninjas. Just roll with it. And okay. he does this thing where he, he captures one. He's like, I'm not going to kill them. And so he just leaves them there. And we come back like, the next issue, he comes back and realises that the assassin that's training him just murdered that person, you know, because they're like, well, what else was I going to do with them? Mm. Like, I was sending you out to kill these people. And Bruce Wayne goes, no, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. What, the trained assassin killed someone? Dear God. Like, I'm going to walk away from you now. But I'm like, (laughs) in principle, the same thing's happened here. You got distracted, did a stupid thing, and someone ended up dead. And although you're remorseful, and the other bloke wasn't... Mm -hmm. There's a spit. Someone did double standards. Someone did like a dub over of the the final scene from the Batman movie under the Red Hood. And if you've seen that movie, basically at the end, the Red Hood puts the Joker at gunpoint and says, "Either you're gonna kill me, or I'm gonna shoot the Joker." And the way Batman concludes this 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 tense scene in the movie is that he turns around and he walks away, and that gets the Red Hood to be so mad that he takes his gun off the Joker to shoot Batman. And Batman throws a battery and knocks the gun out of his hand and then he defeats the Red Hood. But this person edited it so that he shot the Joker because Batman didn't play ball. And so the the actual consequences of what he said would happen, happened. And he plays out this, this long argument between Batman and the Red Hood afterwards. Be like, no, no, you weren't supposed to shoot him. You were supposed to try to shoot me and I was supposed to sh- hit you with a battery. It's this rule that I... I feel like it's there more so as a function to comic books and the fact that the main ca- the main villains can't be killed off than actually has strong moral grounds. I think we've talked about this before, how it's just like, why can't... Yeah, no one's ever talked about this before. It's uh, We're really breaking new ground as a podcast here in our episode about A Court of Thorns and Roses. Well, anyway, I binged yeah. it. I was ill. I wouldn't say it was amazing. I probably don't recommend it. Maybe the original Nightfall. <laughs> Read Nightfall, oh yeah, Bane and Batman fight and there's a backbreak. That's all great. It mm. just keeps going for like 60 issues and it didn't need to. Um, they so just yeah, were, being, they were trying to keep you on your toes. You replaced Batman for a while, like, oh, maybe it's permanent. Maybe it's permanent. Maybe we're going to get rid of our most profitable character. But of course not, because it's comic books and we can't allow a status quo to ever change. Hooray? Hooray. So... Court of Thorns and Roses. A Court of Thorns and Roses. Duncan, what was your familiarity with A Court of Thorns and Roses before I said we were going to read it? Oh, I didn't have a familiarity. Did you know that it existed? I knew Sarah J. Mass existed, and I I think I probably knew that this title 
was out in the ether, but I, I didn't even know that was the first book or that it belonged to this series. And You probably knew it better as Akotar. No, I don't think I even knew it as that. Oh, oh wow. Um, I literally, we're talking like I saw this book repeatedly on the shelf in the library and in Waterstones. Sure. Which, which is interesting. And it goes to show the different realms we live in. Because whilst this was my first time reading this particular book, it was not my first time reading a Sarah J. Mass novel. And because I'm a lot more interested in YA fantasy, even though technically this book is not YA, we'll get into that later, I was way, way, way more familiar with it as a book and its reputation because I I feel pretty confident saying this is the most important book, most influential book to come out in fantasy in the past 10 years. Okay, I'm now thinking over the last 10 years. I'm trying to think of Stormlight Archive started in the last 10 years. That feels pretty old at this point. But then again, that guy writes a lot of books very fast, so maybe it's been less than 10 years. I can't think of anything I want to really throw down. So yes, let's say the most important book in the last 10 years. Go. Why? Purely because um, so much stuff has tried to mimic it, tried to mimic its success, like even down to the naming conventions of books. Books these days, so, so many are called a blank of blank and blank, you know? Or at least something similar to that. From Blood and Ash is supposed to sound like A Court of Thorns and Roses. The way they present their their male love interests. The fact that a lot of YA stuff has gotten raunchier over the past 10 years all comes down to this book. I just want to say how much I love the use of the word raunchy. I mean, um, what are you going to call it? I call this stuff smutty. Yeah, smutty is probably a better word. Yeah, smut... I mean, the people call it fairy porn, like, to be clear. And apparently they only get filthier. Not apparently. I've read parts of them. They do get filthier. Um, it gets it gets a lot less subtle when Sarah G. Mass is like, I can write whatever I want. I'm one of the most successful fantasy writers in the world. I had a wonderful conversation with my younger sister where, you know, mm. we were talking about, and she's like, she's like oh, did you like the book? I was like, yeah, yeah. And she's like, you know, was it not too kind of like smutty for you? I'm like, well... There were bits where I was like, oh, that was a bit far. And she just went, okay, don't read any of the others. <laughs> you thought anything in this first book went too far, stop. Interesting. I think we know how this episode's going to end, but hey-ho. So, but, but my point being, to jump back, it's interesting that this is, in my opinion, the most important fantasy novel uh, of the past 10 years in terms of its influence, and you have no idea. Like, it, it makes absolutely no contact with your side of the fence. Like, no one has ever posted in a forum, hey guys, I really enjoyed reading Wheel of Time. Can you give me some other recommendations? And someone's thrown out A Court of Thorn and Roses. That does make never, some sense. They have very but... different appeals. And I've seen some ridiculous leaks. Do you know what everyone in my world always recommends? Um, everything by Brandon Sanderson. As I just mentioned, Stormlight Archives and Brandon Sanderson. Even yeah. times where you're like, uh, no, they're, they're not similar. Like when people, I've, Tiggy annoys me coming from more like the pulp side of things. Mm. I see people go, oh, I really love Conan. What else should I read? And people like Brandon Sanderson. And I'm like, well, yeah, you should probably read Brandon Sanderson. But that's, that's not related to the point he's just raised. Mm. Like they're not similar authors, um, so that's why I that's why in in sort of the side of fence I sit to me that's what dominates fantasy. Mm-hmm. Duncan, I'd like to not define... dominate your side of the fence. 
I liked, well, in my side of the fence, I can't get away from it. I think that A Call on Thorns and Roses replaced Twilight as the focal point of romance fantasy, supernatural uh, romance in, in, in basically mainstream literature. Like, they, it completely took it away. Um, I think there is a very deliberate reason why she has chosen to write about immortal beings falling in love with mortal beings, because this is the new vampire. So let's kind of take this moment then to actually outline the plot to maybe some of our listeners who haven't read the book. I think, yeah, I think you could do this in one sentence, Duncan. Do you think you could do that? It's Beauty and the Beast, but... Yes, um, yes. You don't have to say but. You don't have to say but. (laughs) It's Beauty and the Beast. It's Beauty and the Beast. No, actually, and this is my, my chance to shine because it's not Beauty and the Beast, Duncan. It's not. It's a story of Eros and Psyche. Congratulations. It is the original Beauty and the Beast. Yes. Um, Why is it Beauty and the Beast, Duncan? It has all the key elements. We have a young woman dissatisfied Mm -hmm. with her provincial life. um, She has two sisters. Two sisters. She is an uh, elderly father who's just Mm -hmm. not making ends meet. Mm -hmm. And she is wished away by an actual beast. Indeed. To his he, castle. Even though he's a hot man and he turns to a hot man a lot earlier than in Beauty and the Beast, he comes in the form of a beast. And essentially, it's a, it's a tale of her locked up with the beast. Mm-hmm. They don't like each other to begin with, but maybe, maybe there's something more that wasn't there before. Mm, and indeed. they slowly fall in love. Um, obviously, easy Stockholm jokes to be made. But I, and, and actually to get in front of that, right from the start, one... Stockholm Syndrome is not real. It was made up by a police psychologist to explain police ineptitude. And second of all, um, I don't think you could really make many Stockholm Syndrome jokes about this. Like, she doesn't fall in love with him because he's her captor. Like, she falls in love with him because she likes him. Yeah, I could still make the jokes. You you certainly can, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that's quite reasonable. And what I actually think... So, the two-thirds of this novel is what I've just described. It Mm -hmm. is... The capture and then the slow falling in love incidents of, um, arise as we kind of slowly explore um, the land of the Fae, which she's whisked off to. Mm-hmm. The final third of this novel actually takes a bit of a twist. And we kind of jump, in my opinion, from Twilight um, over to Hunger Games. And I think it gets really good. And I love the oh, um, last cool. part of this novel. That's interesting because my experience is completely switched. I really liked the first half of this book, where it's just the romance, and I got extremely bored by the exciting bit at the end. Classic. So I'm just going to throw it out there, because we might be discussing back and forth. Mm. In the land of Thay, there is an evil on the horizon. It's kept very vague throughout the romance section. However, yeah, about two ways of the light. Two thirds of the way through, it is revealed this blight is an individual, Amaranth, mentioned earlier, who... Captures Amarantha. Amaranth is a it's a flower, which is a bit like saying that our main character, our villain, is called Rosie, you know, or Rosanna. Hey, maybe I'm just on that kind of casual terms. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Amy, my Uh, pal Amy and I, we're going to the. She's going to go torches and fairy today. That's uh, yeah. Seems what she's into. Um, Scale pals. This the villain captures the love interest Tamlin. Mm. who is the fey lord and our heroine takes up bow and arrow 
and rushes off to save him into the mm-hmm. underground dungeons beneath the mountain. That doesn't go particularly well, but we can get to more of that later. So what? why then was that latter half of the novel so much more interesting to you than the first half? Did you not enjoy the rom- romancy section? No, I did enjoy the romancy section. The issue I had in the first half of this novel is that it's a lot of... Okay, I'll tell you, actually. It's not about halves, Geordie. It's about thirds. Okay. The first third of this novel, mm-hmm. you've got the setup, the igniting incident, sure, where sure. our main character murders a, mm-hmm. a fae, mm-hmm. and on the grounds of some ancient magical contract, that means she must her life belongs to the fae now, and mm-hmm. she's wished away. What we get in that first third is a lot of... Uh, sounds very bad. It's a lot of moping. It's a lot of, <laughs> oh, I just want to go back to my family. Oh, how cruel and evil of you. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying this isn't unreasonable for the character. No, of course not. Like, it's very reasonable. Perfectly well grounded and makes perfect sense and is part of the character development. But from a, my experience as a reader, knowing, not even because she's like told me, Georgie, just knowing this type of plot I was in for, just the vibe I was getting, knowing exactly sure. where this was going, I was a bit like, oh, come, come on now. Just, just fall in love. <laughs> you know what's happening here. Don't wait for him to take you on a magical picnic. Like, stop being grumpy. Your family weren't that nice to begin with. Mm-hmm. In fact, all you've done is tell me how not nice your family are up until the moment you can't see them again. I don't quite agree with this whole sentiment, but I, but I do partially because there are so many scenes where she's like, I need to find a way to escape. And... Time and time again, um, I'm like, okay, look, but you can't escape. That was so clear. Like, stop trying to find a way to get out of the contract. It's been really laid clear that you can't do it. But it, it felt like there were too many scenes for trying to find that special way to get out. Um, like, culminating in her conversation with the Soriel. It wasn't... What it wasn't doing is convincing me as a reader that this was the actual plot we were going on. Like, mm. I never for an instant thought this was the story of her successfully escaping... Sure, absolutely. And not. then it just, going it on the run. It felt like you had to go through the motions. And that's not. It's not bad. No, and there's terms, a re- it's not very a bad ex- idea. And it's not bad. There's a very execution. important reason why she had to do that. I'm prepared to get into that now if you are. I'm prepared, but I do want to say, just because I've just said I get why it was done, I think it's okay that it's done, I think it makes sense that it was done. I don't think mm-hmm. that invalidates the sense that I was like. It went a little well, long in the tooth for me. Yeah, it yeah. probably was a little It could have been done maybe a bit quicker. So the reason why that has to happen is that, very explicitly, A Court on Thorns and Roses is trying to be a feminist reading of Beauty and the Beast. Feyre has to be way, have a lot more agency. She has to be guided by her own desires. She has to be feisty. She can't be submissive and just going along with things. I respect that. And I feel I like that is... That at a half an hour in, we've only just mentioned the main character's name. I mean... It probably isn't the first time we've done that. You know, we just said... I believe uh, you are. You listen back. Our main character, Feyre. Yeah, our main character, Feyre. Uh, what do you think about the name Feyre? Um, the fact that it had the word Fey in it, kind of like, what are we trying to say? Yeah, it's a little here? silly. I mean, I guess it makes um, sense that they'd have weird names like that in their world, but I don't know. Isn't it a bit like being called Adolfi? Like in... <laughs> Okay, like let's they don't not like go down fae. that route. <laughs> um, 
it, the only bit to me is that um actually no obviously slight tangent slight tangent uh there's a character in the saxon books by um uh in the saxon Jody, books we're by, not talking about that no shut up there's a character in the great book who's called his name is Ethelwolf, and i was like that's such a cool name i i i should definitely use that in a story in the future and i was looking at the name Ethelwolf, and i found it had the same etymological root as the name adolf and i was like oh never mind can't use that one <laughs> Anyway, back to Faye. Back to the fairies. Um, Faye, I think it was a fine name. To me, though, because it's so close to Freya, I, I just pronounced it in my head as Freya. Mm. The whole time. The second third of this book, Duncan, the romance section, a bit where she stops being, you know, trying to get away, and she starts making friends with the fairies, and she starts falling in love with the fairies. I, to me, this is the best part of the book. You know, it's the bit where I think Sarah Jamas is really in her element. She's really good at writing those emotional scenes and, like, showing the conflicting desires between revulsion for the fairies and fascination by their beauty. And that comes across really well. I think there's mm-hmm. so much of, um, particularly at the, there's a festival scene. And I think Which it's one? so beautifully done. Um, the festival of the Sun Knight. The one where he gets, Tamlin gets really horny. Okay, cool. <laughs> you, you know the one? Yeah, I know the one. <laughs> um, it's yeah, great they love to do that shit. They all love to do the, he's not just horny, he's magically horny. He's, he's like pent-up alpha werewolf horny. <laughs> they love to do this shit. Carry on, Duncan. But what's so nice about this scene is the I had such great atmosphere. I really felt the, the idea of the bonfires, these ethereal beautiful creatures kind of dancing around but also the threat to our main character how dangerous it was mm, um i didn't like that scene. how aggressive and I, I like the idea that they're all dancing around but they're also because she's the other in the situation you know she's not fully part of it despite how magically whisked away she feels also key scene ava does a lot of things here where people go don't do that it's dangerous and then she I know. does it I know, and I appreciate that, you know, you want her to be this feisty, independent character, but come on. It crossed the come line. Come on! I think the difference here, in this particular scene we're discussing, is the fact that, by this point, um, Favour trusts Tamlin, who is, you know, her ward, who is telling her, don't go out tonight. Mm-hmm. She already is partly falling in love with him, she's already kind of trusting him, so I didn't see why she would turn against him at this point, or not at least... Yeah, and, and obviously he should have explained like the situation. She only did it because she was bored. Like they really didn't feel like a big motivator. It wasn't like she was lured out by the glamour of the fairies, which is a classic in you know fairy lore that you're you're entranced oh. by them. It just felt it like she was so... like, oh, I can't think of anything to paint. I'm going to go for a walk. It could have been done so much more. I say naturally. It could be done so much more in a way that I felt it wasn't on her just being a bit difficult in this scene. If it was like the music, you know, the music could be coming in and she could feel entranced, sort of yeah. not even realising it before she's halfway down the stairwell, what's now going on. Now, here's the thing. The reason why she's done this, I think, is that there's a sort of trope in stories about fairies where people get in trouble because they break the rules. The whole point is that you have rules like don't look at this person's face, don't do this one thing. And then characters do it anyway. That's a classic in fairy tales. So obviously that's what she's going for here. But there is a serious problem with this scene, which actually I think is is gross. Like, she shouldn't have done this. And that is the fact that the threat in this scene is not that 
she'll be affixed by some fairy curse. It's not that she's going to be murdered. It is explicitly, she goes to the wrong party. And here's my trigger warning for a very surprising attempted rape scene. Oh boy, she broke the rules and she almost gets raped. Like, what the fuck? That came, one, came out of nowhere. And two, like, the text is blaming her, right? Like, it's saying it's her fault. That's really fucked up. Absolutely. And it's so annoying because I say, like, oh, she should have just, like, trusted Tam this thing. Uh, the other characters should have just explained the whole situation. No I, good reason not to tell And there's a lot of scenes where her. they're not allowed to, like, tell her stuff explicitly. They can't tell her. But this is not one of them. This is not one of them. And you're right. Well, I, as a, a reader, was getting annoyed because, you know, I can, like, tell. You know, because I care about the character, which clearly it's the author doing a good job. I'm like, no, don't mm-hmm. go outside. It's going to be dangerous. The fact that she gets so much blame from the rest of the characters and even from the author's perspective, it's like you're mm-hmm. meant to be like, oh, you did wrong. It's like, yeah, but not, you know. I'm shaking my head. I'm shaking my head disapprovingly. I don't like the way that scene was framed. A very important thing does happen in this scene, though, and that is that the character of Reese is introduced. I've had Reese spoilers thrown at me. Yeah, I figured you would. How did you get those Reese spoilers? Um, a young sister went, "What do you think of Reese?" And Interesting. I went, uh, "My opinion first reading, I went, oh, it's quite, you know, I was like, well, he, he's quite interesting. Yeah, Reese is the introduced as almost this villainous counter to Tamlin. Mm-hmm. You know, he is in servant to Amarantha." And he is kind of, I think Tamlin is not in terms of in the ways he's first betrayed in mm-hmm. terms of his loyalties and his intentions and his approach and his thoughts around humanity. You know, he hates those evil humans. Um, but then it's quite interesting at uh, the very later stage of the novel, we kind of felt, well, actually, no, he's actually quite loyal to his own people. And he is trying to think of this grand plan to get out of his, you know, admittedly very bad situation. Um, he's playing along, he's doing what he has to for the sake of his people. And he's also weirdly kind of, um, I say weirdly, weirdly for the character that had been portrayed up to that point, uh, mm-hmm. respectful and nice to Freya. I would I would draw the line at saying he's respectful and nice, but I hear what you're saying. I mean, he does okay. repeatedly... He's weirdly more respectful and nice than I was expecting for who I thought was a straight up villain. Mm-hmm. And that was my thing. It's like, yeah, yeah it's, it's a complexity. There was a level of intrigue in this villainous character. And then my and little sister went, no. Yeah, my little sister just looked at me and went, you know, he's the main love interest. I was like, what? Yeah. would I would not have seen it coming if it hadn't been spoiled to me like 10 years ago. She's like, well, didn't you realise when in the first scene he's introduced, he's described as the most beautiful man she's ever seen? I'm like, mm-hmm. do you know what? Actually, everyone just is described, described as the described beautiest, as beautiful be- man she's ever seen. <laughs> everyone! <That wasn't> unique. <laughs> like, uh, when Tamlin takes his mask off, it's like he's the most beautiful man ever. And I was literally there to my sister, like, but he's Tamlin, the love is so pure. He's not actually, he's not actually described as the most beautiful man ever. He's just described as extremely handsome. I was paying attention paying attention and and is that's that underpins because then i started to like that just doesn't make any sense like you know they had such a build-up relation with tamlin and then she went and my sister was just kind of like um oh yeah in the later books tamlin does some things and that just falls apart i'm like yeah that's that's what okay. i've been warned of as well people are like no everyone hates tamlin i'm like tamlin's fine he's nice i re- i was talking to friends who recommended this book to me i was like i don't I don't get it. Why do people not like Tamlin? He seems fine. He's like more respectful and nicer than Edward Cullen. 
and I don't even, and I don't dislike Edward Cullen. <laughs> We've been through this. Check out our episode on Twilight. It's a good episode. So, and I think that, in a weird way, has kind of spoiled the book a bit, because if the series, none of that really feels set up in this book. If I just read this book, similar mm-hmm. way to how in Twilight, um, I would read the first Twilight book and be like, "Why? What's this Edward versus Jacob business?" Yeah, like, because Jacob is not, not in a this. romantic interest in the first book. Reading this first book, that's just not really on the table. It's just about this pure romance between Fair and Tamlin. And if you just read this first book, I think you could walk away and just go, "There's that their lovely love story, hurrah!" But be that as it may, I can't review the rest of the rest of the. Be that as it may, I can't review the rest of the series mm. because I haven't read it yet. So just talking about Court of Thorn and Roses. Indeed, Tamlin's nice. Ish. Ish. Yeah, I mean we can get. I mean, uh, well, should we see more about the romance? Like I just think it's a well-written romance. Like uh, it, it, it's it's sexy. You know, that's what the real thing. I think that's its USP at this point in the game. Um, <laughs> it's smutty. I actually think. Jordy. Yes. Can I give a quote? You may. So, this is the line, the exact line <laughs> that I went, oh, no, you went a little far for me. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm a bit of an uptight Englishman. Sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> no yet. sex, please. Uh, we'll British. move on. We'll move on. Okay. So, this is a scene uh, where Tamlin has is coming up to Farah. Um, they've had some very nice words, and he's going in to kiss her. Mm-hmm. As he lifted my other hand to his mouth and kissed it, it carefully, in a way that made heat begin to pound in my core and between my legs. Whoa! <laughs> I forgot about that. I was just like, excuse me, excuse me. There you go. That was a... Uh... But that was it. <laughs> Can't really fit it. <laughs> We're I outside Duncan's wheelhouse. We're in a realm that he doesn't truly understand. I have so I have something interesting. So speaking of like the smutty side of things, there is something I think that is quite interesting about Sarah Dumas in particular, and that is, I think that her depiction of these brooding, sexy men was actually quite out of mode up till this point. Like the main appeal of like your Edward Cullens and the Edward Cullen lookalikes is that they're kind of like. You know, they're, they're not exactly brooding, hulking men. Their appeal comes from how mysterious they are. Even though, on a reread of Twilight, they actually do talk about Edward having a full chest a lot. Um, but I think that Sarah Jumash's heroes are, like, a lot more Conan-y than you'd expect. They're always described as having huge muscles. You're talking about the descriptions of seeing the cut of his muscles beneath his white shirt... The way the linen folded over them. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's constant, like, and she's really clear about this. And having read, like, some of the Throne of Glass books, that comes back there as well. It's not there initially, but eventually you're having all these ripped, muscle-bound, Harlequin romance novel-style um, uh, romantic heroes. I don't know if this is quite the right era, but it all got very... Um... Jane Austen, you know, I could always see them. Oh, the scene from Pride and Prejudice when you mean specifically, specifically the Colin Fur Pride, Pride and Prejudice. You know, they're getting out of the lake. With the... I think there was very something very specifically. I, I mean, I feel it's like a disservice to Colin Fur because he's he's not sexy because he's he's muscly and ribbed. He's sensitive. He's sexy because he's he's sensitive and sweet, in my opinion. <laughs> of mileage may vary. 
I'm not going to argue with you. Um, and you're right. And Tamlin isn't that. Ca- Tamlin <laughs> isn't uh, a Mr. Darcy. Mm, much. Well, uh, mm, he he has the same appeal in that he's like evasive and initially cold, but like has deeply stirring emotions underneath. But actually, now that I say that, I guess that's more Reese's appeal, right? I can definitely see that. He's got, you know, because Reese has that deep-seated sort of um, uh, prejudice against humanity. And he is very standoff. And, and a lot of pride. pride and he's very standoffish. Well. Yeah. And it's quite, <laughs> he's kind of socially a bit more awkward than Tamlin. Yeah, no, he's, yeah. We found him. Mm. And there's that scene where, where, you know, he, where Mr. Darcy, like, is tending to, um, uh, is tending to, what's the main character of, of Pride and Prejudice called? Elizabeth? Elizabeth, yes, thank Elizabeth you. Elizabeth Bennett. Uh, sorry. He's tending to Elizabeth's wounds, and then he deliberately wrenches her dislocated arm. Classic scene, right? Like, I'm not even dislocated, broken. Like, tortures her? That That's such a hot scene. I do not know how they're going to make reasons to a romantic hero. It makes no sense. He's awful. He's so horrible. <laughs> I don't get it. He roofies her several times, and he's like, ah, but I never touched you inappropriately. Why did you have to say that, man? Why did you need to point that out? That you weren't being a major creep. That's such a creepy thing to say. It was to, sh- uh, it was to save her from the horrific atmosphere of the party. She- but you wrote that, Sarah Jimess. You wrote that scene. Like, you're right in this situation when she could be like that. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> I'm not mad. It's just gross. Anyway. I think we should move on to the third section, the, the, the final part, because the first the, 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 sec, the second part of the book ends with her being sent away after they've um after they've done it, you know, after they've had their kiss and they've slept with each other. He sends her away because she hasn't brought herself to say "I love you," which is the thing that would break the curse. Duncan, were you surprised by this whole third act, as you said, Hunger Games bit, which has to overcome these trials? I was. I wasn't expecting it. It was actually quite, I was getting quite alarmed uh, because we were getting to the end of the, Mm. you know, the second act, second third of the book. And I was like, "Um, I don't see what much more plot we have to get through. We seem to be getting to the romance. Obviously, there'd be a last minute misunderstanding or breakup of some form, Mm -hmm. but I didn't expect it to be so violent and action-packed this was so there's a specific reason for that and that's what i said right at the start of his show this is not an adaptation of beauty and the beast this is an adaptation of the story of eros and psyche now of course you're familiar with the story of eros and psyche duncan because you love greek mythology oh intimately but why don't you just just for fun for the audience's sake the story of eros and psyche is one of the oldest love stories in the world and it is the direct inspiration for Beauty and a Beast. It's about a beautiful young woman, the most beautiful woman in the world. So beautiful, in fact, that the goddess Aphrodite despises her. And Aphrodite, not to be confused with Amorantha, um, presents her with a series of trials. Now, uh, hang on. She, this happens first because she marries her... Uh, you know, I don't want to get into the whole thing because actually it's quite a long story. But basically, she ends up getting married to Eros, the god of love. Like, the god of making people fall in love. Otherwise known as Cupid. He disguises himself from her. He wants her to love him for himself and not the fact he's a super hot guy. So she he refuses to let her see her. But one day, 
Uh, but he, And he treats her really well, like she, he treats her like a princess, but her evil, her two evil sisters persuade her to, to look at him and see him properly, like to peek through his door when he's sleeping to see if he's like actually a monster under his disguise. She sneaks in, oh my god, he's super hot, but he's betrayed by the fact that she, that he, that she betrayed his trust, and he, he runs away. And to get her back, Aphrodite says, you have to accomplish these three dangerous trials. And those trials are what we see happen at the end of this book. As in the, the exact trials, or...? Well, kind of. So, Amarantha says, you have to do three trials. But actually, she gives her five? Maybe six? She gives her three main ones, and she also gives her a caveat, which is like, you can win immediately if you answer a riddle. Um, but she also gives her chores to do. And those two chores are two of, uh, two of Psyche's tests. So the one about separating lentils from ash, that's one of her jobs. That's also seen in like, like Cinderella. That also comes up there. That's what Cinderella is supposed to do whilst her sisters are at the ball. Um, anyway, the point being that it, uh, Psyche's trials are like referenced, but they're not treated with the respect they probably deserve. Like it's kind of like those aren't hard enough. What's a real trial for love? It's fighting a big worm. Duncan, let's go through these trials. What do you think about fighting worms? I loved it. This was... Okay, cool. So well written from my perspective for... Surprisingly Rambo-y. It has it. Oh, it has a really good um, classic pulp action feel. The hero is thinking, constantly thinking, planning their way through they can't beat the monster straight up so they're coming up on the fly they're getting beaten and bloodied and they're coming up with a clever trap Mm -hmm. to beat the monster fantastic yeah yeah it's a pretty good scene it's an exciting scene it's an exciting scene it's a silent action scene where i genuinely was given enough uh thrill that i didn't know how far um fair's fair's um i don't want to use the term abuse how far the author was willing to kind of beat up the character yeah, she gets really messed up, messed up a lot. Like literally, the first thing that happens after she accepts the trial is that she gets a gang beat down by some fairies. That was very strange. It just felt like she really cranked up the darkometer. And at some points, it did seem a little bit almost unfair. That that was the only issue I had with that. Is I'm like, well, clearly Amarantha. I mean, it's is supposed not... to be unfair, but like, then why are you playing her games? I. I... Yeah, so I think the issue I have is more, you know how you were saying, like, it was a bit overbearing, the whole, like, I have to leave, I have to get back to my family thing in the first half. The over, like, the endless, endless self-pity of the last section, which is deserved, she was going through this shit, but it just goes on and on and on. The last section of this book is interminably long. I only had two issues with the sort of self-pitying elements. The first one is the fact that I feel like there's not enough, or I would have appreciated more, just a little bit more like, okay, yeah, I'm in an awful situation, but what can I do to get out of it? There's a little bit too much of sitting there thinking, maybe Lucian, uh, another character, friend of Tamlin's, will come and help me. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I just felt that that wasn't quite the right place where I thought the character was at this point. And the other one is, mm-hmm. there's an awful lot of um, thinking about Tamlin, and I, oh, Poor Tamlin. And I was just like, Tamlin's fine, mate. Just focus on yourself. 
Tamlin was not fine. Poor Tamlin indeed. That dude was in a bad situation as well. I like I liked the depiction of Tamlin that last scene as this like out of reach figure you have to strive for, you know? Like he's the princess in the tower. He has to be he has to be saved and he's in this like emotional turmoil of guilt over the whole thing. I like the way that was written. But it just like she's given three months to accomplish her task. Why isn't it three weeks? Why not three days? Like you can you magically I mean, I mean, heal. Three days might have been a bit. Sh- I mean, th- three days is a bit short. Yeah, if you want some more scenes with with Reese and, and Lucian and stuff like that, but why three months? It just goes on and on and on and on. Like it's just like there's a bits in this which is like, and then we went to our party, and then we went to our party, and I got roofied, and I got roofied again, and I got taken back to my cell, and you're like, why is this still happening? Just move on to the next scene. Come on. Oh, I have a special dress that tells people where people have touched me. Oh my gosh, look. And, and, oh God. Like, let's be clear. This is a book, this is a smutty book. This is a book that's designed for titillation. And the last part of this book is about the titillation that comes from consent being ignored. That's what it's about. Imprisonment. Servitude. Um, a dress that shows you where people have touched you inappropriately. You know, stuff like that. It's just not my cup of tea. For some people, that is going to be their total jam. But if I don't enjoy the beat-by-beat breakdown of that section, then for me, it just goes on for too long. And also, I don't like the trials. The one one is good. The others suck. The second trial, Duncan, is an SAT puzzle. It is a quiz. It is a ABC test. Um, right, okay. I feel like I need to really step in on this part because I said how much I like the third part okay. of this book, the final part, the third of this book. All right. And you've just described it in a way which I am not comfortable with. Um, yes, <laughs> I'm not arguing with the points you've raised. However, you could also like this section because of how downtrodden the hero is. And it, this is the point where they really have to fight their way back up. This is them at their lowest moment. Yeah, but she's not the one doing the fighting. Which... She wins the first trial, but she does not win the second, and her chores get done by other people. Which you could argue shows that the our hero at this point is being more resourceful than just being, you know, physically competent on their own. It's about how their charisma. Like how resourceful? Like what is she doing that's resourceful? To be honest, that's my other main issue because I, if it was her, a sense that her charisma was sort of bringing like Reese on side, but. And that's, that's the thing is, that's the thing. Like, the whole point is that in the story of Psyche, the, re- the way she's able to get to pass her trials is not well written. It's like, it's just that she's so lovely and beautiful that animals come to help her. You know, that whole Snow White, sing to the fairies, get them to do, sing to the birds, get them to do your chores for you. That comes from the story of Psyche as well. Ants come and they move her lentils. But a bird comes and it like picks her up and flies her across the river. It's shit like that. And that happens again. The fact that she's been nice to some people means that Lucian's mum helps her clean a floor and Reese just likes her, so he, he solves her trial for her. Twice. Okay, the Lucian's mum one actually I think is a good example because that's a sign that the character, through just being nice in this world where everyone's very much not nice, can have its benefits. And that's a... That's a I appreciate that. a cute little message that shows that, the you know, the... What I was going to say, a strong characteristic of our main character is what helped them solve the problem. Hurrah. Indeed, I, I think that's fair. But then resolves the other one for her. Yes. And then resolves the next trial for her. 
And when you get to the end of the book, how many of these trials has she actually overcome? The worm one. Yeah. One, one of them. them. And that is a good scene. It's a good, well-written it, action scene. You, you can't just rely on the worm scene, Duncan. <laughs> this, that is one part. That is one part of a very long section of a book. All right. Even I have to admit that this did also run a little long, which is surprising that I think there are two sections of this book that run a bit long in the tooth. And this is not a particularly long mm-hmm. book. They get longer. Sarah Jamas is famed, famed for writing extremely long books. So can we address this riddle? You mentioned it earlier. Yeah. So Geordie, out of interest, it... did you guess the answer to this riddle before <laughs> yes. or after it was asked? <laughs> she hadn't even finished the riddle. She hadn't even finished she didn't the, start riddle. the riddle. I was like, it's love. It's love. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it was so easy. The main villain sets a riddle in a wonderful... I don't know. I was going to compare it to The Hobbit just because it's a riddle scene, but that's not really fair. Um, no, it's, it's just, just a riddle. riddle. And if the if Fair answers the riddle, then she doesn't have to do any of the trials. She just wins instantly. But what could the answer be? Now, hear me out, Jordy. And I mean, truly mean this. I guess love before the riddle was asked. I yes. even said to myself, if this is love, <laughs> wouldn't that be really like hacky and basic? <laughs> <laughs> and then the yeah. first line of the riddle is there are those who seek me a lifetime but never we meet yeah exactly i don't think the riddle needs the riddle by the way is about seven sentences long mm-hmm. it just needs to be one that's enough it's it's a, actually it is a surprisingly long riddle <sighs> and those i kiss but who trample me beneath ungrateful feet love. Oh, it's, it's love then at, at times, times i, I seem, seem to favor the, the clever cle- okay go ahead you do it the clever and the fair Okay, maybe not love. But I bless all those who are brave enough to dare. Okay, oh, love. it's love, yeah. <laughs> but large, my ministrations are soft-handed and sweet. I'm not okay, going to lie, yeah. I actually was like, ministrations? Good word choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is a good word choice. But scorned, sure. I become a difficult beast to defeat. Reaching for a rhyme there, but yep, still love. For though each of my strikes land a powerful blow, when I kill... I do it slow. Oh Man. my God, Jesus Christ! Why? What? I fair at this point in the book, I felt had been set up as a smarter character than her inability to solve this riddle immediately was, and I appreciate she was in a high pressure situation for three months. And I also appreciate that she's not currently reading a smutty romance novel, <laughs> so it might not be on the mind. It, but <sighs> whatever. So, not the best? Not the best. I would love to know if this tone of book, like the last third, is the standard going forward. That's a good question. I bet it is. Okay. Because the thing is that... Yep. I was going to say, surely it must be the second act. It must be the the romance act. But then I think, well, no, you can't do slow romance again and again and again. No, that's right, because they're together now. I mean, oh, well, it can do slow romance again and again if she keeps changing romantic partners. Uh, but I'm pretty sure she settles on Reese. But no, like, um, the next book is about her entering her pact with Reese. She has to spend every second week with him or whatever. Um, so clearly that's going to be the same. Oh, God, I'm, I'm stuck in the darkness. This, this strange, very hot weirdo. And Tamlin's going to be like, I'm so mad and I'm so jealous all the time because you're spending so much time with that weird, we- that hot weirdo. I can't believe this hasn't come up yet. 
we have to talk about her particular depiction of the Fae, right? Because that's the reason people love this book. They love it because it has this these larger-than-life elemental characters, right? It does indeed. Now, prior to this book, Geordie, what was your... What, what kind of Fae-based stories had you read of interest? Uh, her other series of books. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because I think I just want to bring up that when discussing this version of the Fae, I've read two kind of book series that really cemented Fae in my mind. Yeah. I'll and go, that would be... We'll, let's do them one by one. We'll go back and forth. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, Terry Pratchett. Lords and Ladies, as well as his Tiffany Aching books. Sure. And that is very much doing a very direct, the Fae are the villains. Mm-hmm. They are beautiful, but they're also unkind, evil and wicked. And it's up to the heroes to be down to earth and sensible mm-hmm. to defeat sort of the whimsical evil of the Fae. Sure. And, you know, there's also, of course, Strange and Norrell, which we've done on this podcast, which is this absolutely incredible and beautiful depiction of a very mercurial and, and terrifying fairy. And then there's Paul Anderson's Broken Sword. Okay. Which gives us a very um, set during, oh, actually, Saxon stories. Uh, oh, okay. Set during, I believe, it's the, the Viking Conquest. And we get the Fae. These are the Fae that steal the baby out of the crib. Mm. and whisk it away these are the fae that do um elaborate sword dances at balls and it's like one wrong step and you get your head taken off but it wouldn't be fun if there wasn't danger (laughs) kind of fae sure and a really important aspect of my experience with fairies is the spiderwick chronicles do you ever read those duncan i saw the film well, oh boy, uh, then forget it, I said anything. But um, no, great series of books that really uh, got down to the like ugly, goblin-y side of, of fairy lore. Like um, where everything is a bit like warty and strange and they have like weird rules. Like they would ask you a puzzle and they'd always send you in the wrong direction and stuff like that. And um, so yeah, that, that sort of shape-shifty, creepy, monstery side to the fae. So in my opinion... The Fae, as they're depicted in this book, have a lot more in common with the erotic depictions of vampires and werewolves than they do with any kind of actual fairy lore. They're certainly the most human Fae, and I think that must have a lot to do with the fact that they are... uh, We spend a lot of time for characters and we're meant to be on their side, so they get a lot more characterization and a lot more humanization. You can't other something that you need to spend this much time with and your main character needs to legitimately have a romance with. Exactly. They have to basically be people with a little bit extra. I mean, let's be clear, they're a lot more similar to elves than they are to fairies. And weirdly, specifically, the Silmarillion elves? Like, where they're kind of jerks? I can definitely see that. There was no real moment, uh, particularly with like Tamlin, that I didn't, and probably because I read so many comic books after this, um, I was like, (laughs) you could be Superman. You are a human being with superpowers. Yeah. That's kind of it. I didn't really feel, other than his age, but like you said, that's kind of like that elvenness. And their vampireness. And their vampireness. Again, not talking like old vampires, like particularly that kind of Twilight era of new. I say Twilight era, even Empire, uh, interview with a vampire sort of brought that in mm-hmm. much earlier. I feel obliged. 
I think obliged to bring up the fact that another really important part of the YA fantasy space came out about eight years before um, for this book, and that is the Immortal Instruments series. You ever heard of those, Duncan? Um, well, I just confused them in my head for Mortal Engine, so well, I am aware of them, one. yes. Yes, okay. So that is about, like... Part of that's mostly about like fighting demons and stuff, but fairies and the fae do appear in that, and their defining their defining quality in that is the fact that they can't lie. And right from the start, that is the thing that we are introduced to in this book. The thing that really separates fairies from human beings is that they can't die. Uh, they 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 are hurt by iron, classic part of fairy lore, and they're hurt by ash wood, which is quite novel and new. By the time the romance really gets going. Uh, two of those three things are out the window. The iron and the lies. Yes. Now, the iron, I felt, was quite uh, quite easily discarded. I know, for yeah, me, for it's sure. quite a key part of fairy lore. But everyone, what, okay, <laughs> everyone is hurt by iron. <laughs> yeah. And, like, and to be fair, if you were to go and, like, jam an iron knife into Tamlin, he would, it would still cut him. Yeah, for sure. It That's what happens. In. He does get like, cut. Aside from the fact he has... Oh, actually, I forgot to mention this. That whole heart of stone thing at the end, I think that's really good. I put down my was like, that's really clever. That he has a heart of stone and that's how she's able to, to, to beat the test. That was so good. Okay, a bit more context here. So throughout the entire novel, major spoilers, we get dropping hints that um, Fair never feels Tamlin's heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And at the very end, um, the final challenge, Fair has to murder three individuals. And she, being the good person that she is, is to be with the one she loves, picks up the knife and gets straight to killing. Which I hope we would be explored more in a sequel. I hope we'd get a real kind of character depth of like well, the impact that would have on you. But anyway, she goes, she kills the first two people because she doesn't know them. Um, mm-hmm. And the final one is, is the mask comes off Oh, the hood comes off and it's Tamlin. Mm-hmm. She's like, I cannot kill him. But then she realises he has a heart of stone. He will not mm-hmm. die. And so she stabs him. Um, yeah, you're right. It is a really good moment. I love that because one of the times I look back, you think back to the book and you're like, I didn't see that. It was mm-hmm. right in front of my face, but I did not see it. Yeah, and brilliant. I really appreciated that. I, 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 I'd say I normally pick up on things. I was quite proud when I read um, Broken Earth and I knew that there was no moon. Sorry, that's a spoiler. I was proud of myself for that. So this one I didn't see and it made sense and I loved it. Fully agree with you. Uh, that scene, by the way, I don't think gets quite enough attention for what she decides to do in that scene. I hope it is explored more in the sequels. Right. I think it is. Rolling I, back. I, I'm 100% sure. The whole last part of this book is like, I can't believe what I've done. Uh, what have I done? The whole final chapter is all about that. But yeah. Uh, what were we saying back. before I get distracted by hearts? lying they can't lie yes. and that's revealed to be bullshit and i yeah. love the fact that not only is it revealed to be bullshit they're like well yeah if we're fighting a war against your people what an excellent thing to say brilliant I, propaganda i really did not like the fact that they can't lie i thought right from the start when it, that was introduced and that was so clearly led it to be really important i was like this is great. This is going to be such an interesting read. How are you going to do all these like manipulation stuff and have these clever conversations where where you can't lie? And like 
there's this really interesting part of the book The Dark Forest where aliens can't trust humans because basically aliens communicate because they can essentially see each other's brains through like transparent skulls and they can they basically have telepathy, you know, they, they read each other's thoughts back and forth. There can be no lies. When they discover that human beings communicate through vibrating air and can lie about things, they can't understand the concept of a lie and therefore can never trust humans. They will know they will never be able to get along with humans because the fact that humans could tell them something which isn't true is terrifying for them. But she just throws that a window. Okay. So I said that I really liked the reveal. I think you're saying then that you didn't like the sense of kind of wasted potential. That like if she'd actually written this book to have manipulation but no lying, that would have been amazing to experience. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. I felt a little differently here. So I, I, I kind of get that. I get this thing like if you're waiting for that setup. Personally, I wasn't looking forward to much for that because I read in Wheel of Time. Robert Jordan's work. He has a similar concept with his um, order. Don't know much to do. One sec. Duncan, look, we're, we're listening. Our Court of Thorns and Roses fans are listening. They do not cross over with our Wheel of Time fans. Asadi, Asadi. Yes, that's what they're called. What not Ben Hesera. That's Dune. Asadi. 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 That's definitely mispronounced. <laughs> And there's a similar concept there. And constantly, all the characters are going, oh, they can only speak the truth. Yes, but you cannot trust what they say, for they can speak in half-truths. And the the truth you think you hear may not actually be what they're saying. And I'm like, oh, this is a really clever concept. Mm-hmm. I've read a lot of Wheel of Time. I've read all of it. And okay. at no point have I actually gone, oh, yeah, that was really cleverly done, how they twisted that. <laughs> Like, it was never actually used. Pretty much 100% of the time, they were just telling the truth. So, yeah, they're just telling the truth. Or they'll refuse to talk. They'll be like, I can't tell you about that now. (laughs) You're like, well, you're not using this concept. So I think I wasn't expecting it to be done well, which is weird because I know it's a completely different author. This, you know, Sergei Mas could be a much better writer than Robert Jordan. I'm not going to have that debate now. You're in a position to make that judgment. Um... I'm, I'm laying down a drum. I'm going to lay down a drum roll here, Duncan. I'm going to need you to make a definitive decision. Who is the better author, Sarah J. Mass or Robert Jordan? Go, Sarah J. Mass. Um, Whoa, he didn't even hesitate. Because um, Robert Sarah J. Mass never made me DNF in the middle of a book. Whoa, wow, yeah, like, one for one. So that's where so. we stand. So I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't expecting that uh, as much kind of great things. Uh, so I was as disappointed by it and I was okay. And we kind of moved on quickly. And mm. I felt the humour of the reveal was worth it. It was like a set up for a joke. They can't lie. They can't lie. What are you on about? Of course we can lie. That's just propaganda. Um, I mean, fair enough. I can see why you'd enjoy it. I felt a little, as like I said, I felt a little underwhelmed by that. And the, the joke kind of felt like it was on me. Like I was being laughed at. So I guess that might be why I had a different approach to that particular scene. So how about some of the other Fae? Because that's the only thing that I found quite interesting in this. When we talk about the Fae, or the Fae of like human for superpowers. To be fair, yeah. that's only really the high Fae. That's there are right. a lot there of other are... kind of fantastical creatures in this book. That's right. There are a lot of goblin-y stuff. I do appreciate the fact that Fae is a very deliberately nebulous term because that actually is pretty true to the way a lot of, um, you know, a lot of cultures talk about their monsters. Like, 
you know, when I say the word elf to you, Duncan, you might have a really specific idea about what I mean in terms of a fantasy creature. But if you ask the Icelanders what they meant when they said elf, they basically just meant a spirit who is nice. The opposite of a troll, which is a spirit which is bad. So every kind of goblin and underground creature and, like, mean giant, which isn't actually a giant like a Jotna, but, like, that's a troll. It's just a bad guy. It's like the word boogeyman. So the fact that fey just means non-human being, I like that a lot. Yeah, I do too. Um, I really enjoyed the fact that not all the, you know, some of the, especially the um, the variants in the fey, you've got mm. these ones living in their manor houses, um, and yet you've got these kind of just kind of nebulous creatures or, you know, yeah, like swarms her, of evil her intent. maid has like tree bark skin. That's great. I also like how um, Tamlin in this book, he casts like a, a glamour over the household so that it looks more human to fair when she first arrives and there are less people in it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's kind of a, I think a nice way from her point of view as a character, but I also like that kind of second reveal for us as a reader. Being like, oh my God, you know, this is actually far more fantastical than I you're letting well, on. I did well, actually. I did like that scene, especially the stuff about the gardeners being like beetle people, like buzzing around, busy, busy bees. Uh, and she's just like, again, I, I think I just don't like that particular style of, oh, you thought this? <laughs> I just don't, I, I just don't find it amusing or funny at all. Um, so when Lucian's like, you just thought the gardens did themselves? I'm like, fuck off. Why wouldn't she think that? You're magic. Fuck you. Uh, but it is actually a good written scene. I just don't like that particular style of humor. I also like the history the Fae is given in this. I particularly enjoyed the, um, the background, the human Fae war. Yeah, That's the interesting thing about 30. this book is that the world building it is actually really like solid and strong, which is a weird thing for me to say because I generally do not care about world building. Uh, but I think she actually did a really good job of like slowly laying it out bit by bit, and I'm impressed by it. Good job, Sarah J. Maas. I know you talked about you didn't like the bit where Lucian is like, oh, what you thought the uh, garden just looked after itself. Mm-hmm. But there's a moment in the world building where something similar happens, I feel, and I adored it. And that's okay. when um, Tamlin reveals that there were Fae fighting on the side of the humans. And it's just like, what? You thought non magical humans successfully fought us super powerful Fae to a standstill? No, no, I think that's very reasonable. I think that is a good scene because I had had that same question. I thought, how did they win? Like, that's crazy. How did they beat them back? And that's the fact that I think that was delivered in a really, really good way because it wasn't, like, making fun of her. It's a genuine, like, solid reveal of, like, yeah, that makes sense. That was a sort of gap in my knowledge which you have now filled in. See, I I keep kind of flicking around. I think there's so much praise I have to give to this book and the way it was written. And if anything, the only kind of notice I really feel are choices of... Why did you want to do that? Like, why have you made this the plot? Why? Well, talking about that kind of that final arc, mm-hmm. it's like, why have you decided to have several party scenes of our main character getting roofied? Yeah. Why have you decided that? Why have you committed pages to this? Exactly. But because never the is my issue with writing how... is very good. Like, she's a really solid writer. Shockingly so, you know, when you w- she wants to give us a mystery, I feel the mystery. When she wants to feel the romance, I feel the romance. When mm-hmm. she wants it to be smutty, you know, I can always skip over the paragraph. 
and it works really well consistently throughout. Uh, one element that we haven't really spoken about, and that is Tamlin's deceit. I don't know if you want to kind of dive into that. Not really. Like, I'm fine with it. I was found myself weirdly fine with it. Originally, yeah, I like... actually was like, surely I should be more bothered that mm-hmm. he's being a bit of a lying bastard. But then you very quickly, I just went, oh, he's doing it for the greater good of his people. Yeah, it's legit, it's totally fine. And like, he didn't even, he didn't take advantage of her in any specific way. And he was specifically trying to make sure that she was like safe and stuff, despite her better efforts. Um, and she's, and the most important thing is that like, she's obviously fine with it. Like she makes pieces out really quickly. Um, I really don't feel like he was worth getting bent out of shape over. Like there's stuff in, the fun, the thing is that like, you know how, people are always talking about making Stockholm Syndrome jokes about Beauty and the Beast, even though, like, specifically looking at, like, the Disney version of Beauty and the Beast, and it's not Stockholm Syndrome by any stretch of imagination. She just literally comes to see that he's not such a bad guy. They become friends, and then they fall in love. It's the same for this. It's like, there aren't any Stockholm Syndrome jokes to make. You know, she's told she can't leave, but then he lets her go, and she leaves. And... I really failed to see the harm that was done in the meantime, you know? Like, yeah, he lied. Whatever, who cares? Just to be very clear about this, this is a, a lie set up when he originally takes her away. He tells her about this ancient magical contract and why she has to come with him. Um, and that contract isn't real. She doesn't have to come with him. She's just He just needs her to fill the very, very specific conditions of a curse that's been placed on him where someone who has killed a friend of his must fall in love with him an easy curse to fulfill i like the fact that it's so weird and nebulous like that is it's so specific uh but i also really the fact that like we've been trying to do this for years we keep sending people to die in the woods and no one is killing them why are people killing these people come on i thought that was actually really solid do you ever feel a little bit for like tamlin what if like to what extent would he, he gone like he got lucky with who pharaoh was Mm-hmm. But if it had been anyone else, say someone less traditionally attractive, would he still be like, right, go seduce them? He did That's not. Ha- he didn't have to fall in love with them, and he didn't intend to fall in love with Pharaoh. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a situation there where he's like, yeah, babe, I'm so totally into you. He's being like a, a, a Tinder fuckboy. That would have been a worse, that would have been a lot, much worse book. I actually kind of, actually, there were parts of this book where I thought that was might might happen, actually. That the curse would be broken and then he'd meet Because I know that Tamlin eventually turns to a bad guy somehow. And maybe the way that happens is that the moment his curse is lifted, he's like, okay, well, I don't need you anymore. So that was going on in the back of my mind. I would still personally feel like, and obviously I know this is something that's going to happen, but that feels so much more of a show of his character. There's nothing in this book that really suggests to me he is any more kind of deceitful than we've already seen. No, I, I think I, I would be annoyed if it was like, oh, ha, ha, he was secretly evil the whole time so here's bother me so here's my thing and this is why i'm absolutely certain it's going to come from i already said this earlier but i think that the wedge is going to be formed from jealousy um because a strong trait which all of sarah j mass's alpha male heroes and i'm using that term in the least ironic sense she is specifically writing like alpha male characters in every way that you can imagine is that they're extremely territorial. Like, I've lost... you can, I've lost count of a number of times you use the word feral in this book. That's her main distinction for what makes fairies different from, from people, is that they're bestial. They snarl and they show their teeth and stuff. 
And then you add to this that whole alpha male mentality of get away from my woman property. She's mine. That's 100% where it's going to come from. And I, it's my, my thing I kind of le- like the least about it. I don't find it remotely appealing in a romantic hero. There's a surprising amount of crossover on the Venn diagram between territorial and insecure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think she is aware of that, but also it's definitely part of the titillation, you know. That's part of the appeal is the, you're mine, you're only mine. And it's that's supposed to be shown as, like, devotion as opposed to, you know, as you say, insecurity. Talking about devotion, we haven't really dived into one of my actual favourite characters in this book. Lucian? Lucian. Can't fucking stand yes. Lucian. You can't stand Lucian? No, he's such a tool. Uh, and the, the problem, Duncan, is that I've read all the books that came out after A Court of Thorns and Roses in which this character has appeared, like uh, from Blood and Ash, and I hate those characters. And I've seen Lucian, and I can see now where they come from, and unfortunately I have turned my resentment towards those characters and i've turned them against lucian which is not fair to him let me tell you about lucian from my perspective okay then, as a, a new reader to this sort of subgenre, lucian is the loyal friend to mm-hmm. tamlin we lucian love loyal friends in our podcast is... we've said that from the beginning absolutely and it's so fun because he's willing to kind of take the joke out of tamlin a bit you know when tamlin's so serious yeah. and or oh, the duties and the honour and the how I must fall in love. Yep. Lucian's there to kind of lighten the mood. But also, Lucian is also what I like about him is the fact that he doesn't always align with Tamlin's goals, personally. You know, mm-hmm. he's not always actually like Tamlin. I don't know if this is the best idea or we should do this or I don't like what you're doing here. But he is willing to be like, but I owe you as a friend and like you've done all this. So, you know what? I will support you in this. Yeah. And I also felt that his growing friendship with Fair was in many respects weirdly kind of more genuine and heartwarming for me because it didn't have that attractive, you know, them being physically attracted to each other kind of overtones. I can, yeah, for sure. I can see that. She has Tamlin. It's not because he's particularly beautiful. It's because he's lighthearted and he'll have a joke and they go out together to just enjoy time and have very kind of like platonic ch- chats. Mm-hmm. And I like that, unlike with Tamlin, who, again, is incredibly territorial, Lucian has a moment where uh, Fair calls out in need, this is quite early in the novel, mm-hmm. and he's hesitant. He's like, oh, actually, do I really want to do this? Mm, yeah. But by the end of the book, when we're in that dark scenario, uh, um, when we go on that evil quest to fight Amaratha, Lucian is there and he's putting his neck on the line, mm-hmm. you know, his body to help fairer yeah and you f- i feel like he's seen that partly yeah it is because he's friends with tamlin but i really felt at this point he was doing it because he'd gained a friendship with fairer and he also appreciates his, his only way of ending the terrible situation but still i felt that friendship was there i that's all true and duncan that was well said good job thank you yeah I'll, uh, again I'll it's not lucian's it. fault that i don't really like his style of character it's kieran from from blood and ash fuck you kieran <laughs> Um, not knowing who this Kieran chap is, are they more annoying? Yes, so annoying. God, out of interest, then what could Lucian have done that would have made he made him more Kieran like? It's to not you? again. It's not no. Oh, what could make him more Kieran like? Yeah. Um, like, if he was just constantly on his like quippy, sarcastic bent, which he does a lot, but Lucian has plenty of times he gets very serious. 
Um, if he never broke out of that, oh ho ho, I take everything a lot more lightly than Tamlin mode, then I would be completely sick of him. He does have more variation to his character. Okay, I can definitely see how that would be annoying. Um, mm-hmm. I was also having another thought. It's the simple fact that he's not like the Lord High of the. He's Marvel. also always there. He's just always there. Like, give get a room, Kieran. Come on, Kieran. I said Kieran. I said Kieran. Oh my god, I clearly am traumatized by that book. Oh gosh. Anyway, did you enjoy a quarter of I've ruined too much of my baggage to this episode. Dirty, did you enjoy this book? I did enjoy this book. I enjoyed I thought, this. Book. I feel bad that it's been. Uh, a little too long since we've read it because I felt like I have not been able to properly say all the stuff I like about it. Like, I think it has really strong prose and really strong character interaction. Like, the scenes where people are just talking are really strong. I'm not going to forget certain scenes in this book, I don't think, for a while. Like, and we haven't spoken about it. We're talking about, like, the romance moments when they're kind of falling in love. Like, the scene Mm -hmm. of, like, the starlight in the water oh yeah that's very creative unusually creative for sarah j mass like that really stood out that imagery will stick with me i think the character of like lucian tamlin and fair are going to kind of be there in my subconscious and i'll probably be doing Mm. comparisons to them going forward Um, i'm probably not going to want to read any more books in the series but oh duncan (laughs) i did enjoy my time Come on, but don't I can see something. I do want to know what happens with this whole Reese thing, don't you? No, not particularly. I have a happy ending. Ah. Why would I want to ruin it? I mean, I definitely am in the person who's like, okay, that was a happy enough ending. I'm done. I will end the series here. Um, but it would be good for the podcast, Duncan, if you continue to read one of the most successful book series of all time. And you know what, mate? When we get to Stormlight Archives, we'll go for the whole hog. Mm. Yeah, well, here we go. So. Recommendations? Recommendations? I recommend this book. I recommend this book to anyone. I mean, I feel like it's crazy that I'm the one recommending this book. But yes, if you like supernatural romance and you have somehow not read this book, there is a reason why people are suggesting it to you. It is a good version of that. Um, I recommend A Court of Thorn and Roses. As I said, obviously, anyone who loves the John hasn't read it, obviously you should read it. I also think... Um, Having only read two books in this subgenre, Geordie, this would be... Well, I would recommend this over Twilight. This I enjoyed yeah, oh, a for lot sure. more. It's... Um, and if you're yeah, thinking... the, pr- the prose and dialogue in Twilight are quite pedestrian. Um, and whilst the story itself is like enjoyable, and especially the last exciting act, that's good. This book is just better on every front, you know? The dialogue is better, the prose is better, the story is better told. Yeah, it's a lot more fun. Um, I felt. I, I think there was a general. I really felt the strength of our protagonists a lot more. I felt the the witticisms were there. The sense of danger was greater. Uh, and to be honest, uh, the the smuttiness was uh, dialed up quite a bit, and that's a lot more fun. Yeah, you didn't have to wait to the fourth book for that this time. So we go straight to. Um, on that note, what's it called? <laughs> Breaking Dawn. There you go. On that note, then, because I can't really recommend it to people, obviously, if you're into this genre, you've probably read the book. I would say that from my personal experience, if you're thinking of breaking into this genre, uh, this is a very good book, I'd say, to start with. Yeah. Do you recommend this book to fans of A Wheel of Time? Yeah. Oh, cool. I mean, it's the length of about a chapter from the final Wheel of Time book. So, you know, 
If you've read Feel yeah, the Time, sure. you'll steamroll through this one. Alrighty, man. So, I think it's time where we decide what we're going to be reading next time. And this time it will be two weeks, I swear to God. And it's my pick, I believe, this week. It is your pick, indeed. This was mine, and it's yours now. So, Duncan, here's a question for you. Are we going to read the next book in the Scolomance trilogy? In the future, maybe. Uh, but okay. not... You better have a really good book planned for this, because I am this close to using my special veto card, which we have not yet named! So, as people have been following our book club this year, I've been trying to do a bit of a decade walkthrough you know started in the 70s hit an 80s and now i'm just looking for a 90s book and geordie i was kind of peering about i was only thinking, 90s kids will remember um and i was like well okay. harry potter started in the 90s oh i was like oh, didn't yeah, um we totally need to read that that's the thing we need to be doing right now didn't gardens of the moon Mazalan, book of the fallen uh books of the fallen that started in the 90s uh, with weird of time in the 90s i'm not sure and i was thinking oh these big epics um yeah it's true and then i realized ah, i know what's the perfect pick something that i've been meaning to revisit for years something that's surprisingly relevant with a recent adaptation and something that i really think marks a change in the genre a type of book that i don't think had really been seen before this decade and hasn't grossly been seen a lot afterwards and that you, is you're so, you're selling this really well, Duncan. But I have to say, if this is some book which I've never heard of, and you're trying to like, trying to hit me out of left field, uh, I will spend my card right now and make you read Scotland. So this better be a good one. Don't worry, my friend. I'm going to ease you in. This is a lovely lulling boat ride down the river because you're going to be reading Philip Pullman's The Northern Lights. Oh yes. I love this book. This is going to be, this is going to slap. All right. Sorry, Scolomance. You're going to have to wait. This is going to be amazing. Um, Duncan, uh, we might have our first complete series because I'm telling you, I'm going to pick a subtle knife after this. I wouldn't blame you if you did and I would enjoy it immensely. Uh, so the Northern Have you read the whole series? I know you've been enjoying the TV show. I have. I read this when I was very young. Um, I say mm, very young. Me too. Probably around 11 nine. or 12. Shortly mm. after the film came out. Mm. Um, so I've read this back then. I have not touched it since. Um, I've been enjoying the recent BBC adaptation. So it's time to go back and read that first book again and see what about it worked. And also see reading this book, having now finished the series, I think is going to give it a yep. very different perspective. So I'm excited for that. Oh, for sure. I think I'm going to notice way more stuff about Catholicism this time. Like it probably went over my head before. I was still going to church when I read these books. Like I had not lost my faith so i wonder how much that's going to change well can't wait to do it with you mate so please join us in two weeks time for our book club session on the northern lights or the golden compass for you american listeners in case that wasn't clear oh dear god yes um and if you have any opinions on uh sergey mass's a court of thorn and roses if you want to come and shout at us for all of our terrible takes on it you can do so by contacting us on our Instagram, it's just fantasy podcast, or via Gmail, it's just fantasy podcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Hooray! We'd love to hear from you. I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. I've been your other host, Duncan Nickel. Bye. Bye bye.